0: Welcome to H2Hour.
1: What up, y'all? It's Darbs.
0: What's up? I'm Wu. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us uh, this week. Sorry we took a week off. We've had a lot of stuff, a lot of organization that's happening. And so um, we have been trying to uh, get a really cool mini-series going, uh, which is our Women in Water series. Um, We're excited about this. This is uh, what we both kind of live for. This is what we do. And so... um, Um, We're going to talk to several women that have to do with water in some form, fashion, whether that be, um, you know, public, private, academia, um, uh, you know, operations, things like that. So um, on this episode today, uh, we have someone I'm really excited to talk to and um, Darbs, I'm going to go ahead and and leave that to you um, and tell us a little bit about who we're speaking with today.
1: Today with us, we have Amy Hardberger. Amy is a George W. McCleskey Professor of Water Law and the Director of the Center for Water Law and Policy at Texas Tech University. Amy also taught at St. Mary's School of Law where she served as the Associate Dean for the School of Law and the Associate Provost for Academic Operations. On top of that, Amy has worked as an attorney for the Texas State Branch of the Environmental Defense Fund, the EDF clerked for the Honor William Wayne Justice, worked as an environmental consultant and geologist for Universe Technologies at Kelly Air Force Base, and currently serves on the board of trustees for the San Antonio Water System, SAWS, as well as being a member of San Antonio's Capital Improvements Advisory Committee. Amy has also written multiple articles on the topic of water, specifically water conservation, water policy, and water rights. Welcome to H2Hour, Amy.
0: And um, I do want to thank you for your time. I know it's valuable. I know you have to be super, super busy, especially with school. I guess you guys are what? Let's see, October. You're probably in. Halfway. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So oh, the good think... news is
2: my class this semester is asynchronous, and the last classes are getting posted this week. So my, my part is We're done until final exam. So
0: nice. and last so- push. So you kind of do a little bit. So you're with some of the other professors. You're kind of leading the whole department there at Tech, right?
2: Uh, Well, not really. I mean, so there's the center. So I I direct the center, but right now the center is mainly me. Um, And so, you know, maybe in a couple of years we'll have a little bit more, you know, it'd be great to be able to bring in some grants and have, you know, the, the hard part is—I was going to say postdocs—but the hard part is, you know, there isn't really an equivalent for that for law. I mean, I guess you could have someone who's graduated who, for a year, wants to work at the center. So it just kind of depends on what what develop what projects develop. So a lot of my time right now is like this morning. I spent the morning finishing the strategic plan because that's the way I think, and I needed to kind of think through things. Um, Yeah, it just kind of depends on where it goes. I mean, it could be everything from just me and my classes and my publications, but I think that would be small thinking. And there's quite a few projects. And luckily, I have a lot of good relationships that I've built over the last, you know, 10 years that are excited that I'm now in a position because I've been doing uh, school administration. So I haven't had a ton of time to do my water work. Uh, So a lot of people are happy that I'm back. So I'm hoping that you know, there's been a lot of calls and conversations about, you know, what could we work on? So I'm optimistic that something will crop up.
0: So do you have, do you do any um, connecting with the water resources department and the engineering side of things? Yeah, so
2: that's one of the things I'm doing now is like reaching out to different departments. So engineering, I'm gonna turn my little light on and then agriculture and engineering, Mm -hmm. I would say, are probably the two biggest departments that I'm talking to right now. Um, or trying to sort of get to know, see what type of research people are doing. I mean, I've spoken, the, you know, the, the people, the grants office of tech is sort of aware of what everybody does. And so they do a good job of plugging in like, Oh, well, if, you know, if somebody is applying for an R1 grant, like or a big NIH grant, then they will, they can say, you should go maybe reach out to Amy. And so that stuff is just kind of starting to happen, but I'm pretty optimistic. have a kingdom a fiefdom before long. (laughs) I like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Darbs, you want to you want to jump in and and and
1: start on your end a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So my questions are a little bit more um, personally derived. And then they also kind of go in with some professional stuff. The big thing is so I know you actually are a graduate of the Texas Tech Law School. I am. And then you came back to Texas Tech this year. This is round Um, three. This is round three with Texas Tech. So why why three rounds of tech Did you you just can't leave us alone? <laughs> it's love It's
2: the black hole. Uh, yeah, my yeah. love it
1: connections.
2: Um I mean in some ways that's that's true and um, I mean I think it's sort of a lesson in you are your relationships. I mean everything has been about, you know, making building good relationships and maintaining them. So I mean law school was a decision that was based quite frankly, on money. Um, they offered me a scholarship and um, they did have a water person there. Um, actually, the water person that was there when I was there retired right when I got there, but then that actually worked out really well too because the person that they hired uh, was my faculty member and we are about the same age, actually, because I was a little late going to law school. And so um, he and I collaborate all the time together. So. Uh, and, and, you know, Lubbock was a familiar place to me. It's an easy place to live. So for Lubbock, that was kind of, I mean, for law school, that was kind of the decision. Um, and then, you know, then I worked for six or seven years or whatever it was. And um, sorry if the noise of the dog is playing with her toy. So I'm like, she's already, she she's already nudged me three times. Um, so I just like keep handing her stuff. Um, so. And then uh, six or whatever years later, I got a phone call from uh, the person who actually taught me torts, who at the time was acting dean, and said, Hey, we need somebody to teach land use, which was a class, by the way, I hadn't even taken in law school. I can say that now because it was far enough away. You don't want students to know that the first time <laughs> they teach it. But I've now been teaching it for a decade, so I'm. You feel comfortable uh and so she said look we think you'd be the perfect person you know this would be a great opportunity for you to see if academia is something that you may want to do my job gave me a le- it was only one semester my job gave me a leave of absence and then that ended up turning into a year and a half and then kind of went on and then uh, that was a visiting professorship so it wasn't intended to be a long-term deal And I got, you know, a job in my hometown, which was really great for me at the time and worked there for eight years, which is nuts. Um, And then, yeah, got a call that the person who had taken the position, you know, six or seven years ago was leaving and would I please apply? And, you know, at first I'll be honest, it was a pretty hard no because the idea of moving and all that kind of stuff, but the world is... Even before COVID, the world had changed considerably in the decades since I was at Tech, and uh, you know the opportunity of the center, and the R1 designation of the school, and all the work that's coming out of there, and the ability to be a lot more flexible and remote. I mean, it was just kind of a who says no to that job,
0: you know? Right, no brainer.
2: But well, yeah. So I mean, it's and I'm now working beside you know half the people I work beside taught me in my classes, and you know I've just been able to maintain those relationships and. Yeah, I mean, what I tell my students is, your your those relationships and your reputation is every, everything, everything, everything. Yeah. And when you're in
1: college, you don't think about that, and then you know down the road, you're like, we tell them, oh. we tell them in law school like a
2: hundred <laughs> times, because in law, in the law in particular, it's very very small. It's a small community, um, and so you know, the story I always tell is there was a guy in my first year class in my section who ended up getting caught cheating and they let him come back and graduate, which a lot of us didn't like. And a friend of mine, like two years later, called me and said, hey, do you know this guy? And I said, no. She gave me the name and she said, well, he was in your class. Well, he had started going by like his first name or his middle name or whatever it was. And I said, yeah, I know him. Once I figured it out, she said, no, he's in your class. And and I said, yeah, he's the one that got caught cheating. Well, he didn't get that job, so I mean. So yeah. If yeah. that stuff comes around, you know, don't, I mean, I was a tattling, but don't ask me if I know that person, because I'm going to tell you what my experience is with them.
0: So, yeah, that's, a, I mean, same, same on our end, too. I mean, yeah, I'm still, sure. I still connect to a lot of my old professors. They're like great resources. And yeah. obviously the people you graduate with go on to their, you know, all their different um, places. And so those are also really good, especially being in the private sector. There's, there's so many good connections mm-hmm. that you can make that way. So Absolutely. Yeah. And
2: I mean, even if you don't go back to work with them, to your point, like, you know, you don't know who they know. I mean, my very first job, uh, you know, they wrote recommendation letters for me for, I mean, just from the from the jump, even if I'd never gotten into academia, which, which is, by the way, a fun thing about being now in academia is to be able to provide that for, for other students, right? Um, that's part of, I think it's an integral part of what our job is. Um, so I take that pretty seriously. see if I can get more light in here. It's getting very...
1: Well, and going back to your, so you were in South Texas and then you came back to West Texas. You're from South Texas originally. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm actually a Corpus Christi native, so, um, but there's a big difference in how water is viewed in West Texas versus from where we're from in South Texas. So how have you seen, especially since the last decade since you were here, how have you seen that difference in being back in West Texas?
2: Um, well, I'm actually, I'm actually in San Antonio at the minute because of COVID. But um, oh. so yeah, but I mean, you know, my students are all there. So point taken, you know, I mean, I'm sort of fairly new back and, and I've been working with West Texas all along. So it doesn't feel that different. And, and I have to say, like, there's a mix in both places um, and the motivations are different. And I think it's in many ways, sometimes it's more rural urban than west and south, you know, north and south. Um, And my hope is that even that gap is gonna get bridged a little bit because it's just, it's not productive um, for either side. So, you know, I think sometimes the bigger challenge now, and I haven't really found this yet, but just from a societal standpoint, is the sort of what I consider to be the assault on science and numbers and, you know, talking about things like, you know, facts like their opinion. And really trying to separate those out and just, you know, we can't have valuable conversations if we're not talking about the same thing. We don't have to have the same. You know, I've heard people say, oh, that's just your opinion. And and it's like, well, no, that's a fact. Now what we're going to do about it, that's an opinion. So I think having these conversations where we're starting from the same baseline and then we can sort of branch out um, that's really the, the sort of the line that I try to draw in class I mean everybody has a right to their own opinion as long as they're saying it with you know kindness and professionalism but I'm not gonna dispute the facts I don't you know so I think sort of drawing those lines and I mean in many ways sorry next toy um, <laughs> so this could be this is gonna be tricky I could tell. Um, So, you know, in many ways, the rural communities have more sort of fact, they've been more fact driven, I think, in a lot of ways, because like, I think about my family, you know, that is a ranching family. And, you know, they they can tell you on any given day, or my farming family, they can tell you the last time it rained without thinking about it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, it's just about creating a good baseline, figuring out what the desired outcomes are. Sometimes that's the tricky bit, you know, where do we want to be in 50 years? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I have lots of actual questions right along that line. So you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of speaking to exactly where my mind was on that. Um, but but I do want to, and, and forgive my naivety for this because, um, you know, um, I guess I've been doing engineering now for seven years. I, I was kind of the same. I, I uh, when I graduated high school, which I, I grew up mostly in Lubbock. I was, I was born in Houston, but most of my uh, schooling was in Lubbock. Um, I lived in Dallas for six years. I lived in Austin for three years. Um, um, you know, I came back, I graduated high school. I went out kind of figured out some stuff, and then I came back to school to finish. And so I, I kind of was, I was always the older one and all of those different sects of, um, yeah. of whatever it was I was doing. But um, it, if, if you had to kind of explain, I guess, the standard or, the, or to the average landowner, you know, how their water rights are, are not necessarily solely theirs just because they own the land. So kind of speaking in a, I guess, you know, a lot of you find this in a lot of rural communities. We find mm-hmm. it in a lot of rural communities um, in, in dealing with just drilling some groundwater wells and things like that, you know, there, there's, it does become political. Most water rights, anything with water becomes political. Very but personal. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, um, how would you how would you kind of explain that in layman's terms uh, about the difference in, in owning your land and owning the rights to the water that might be an aquifer below your land? Yeah. So
2: I mean, in te- i mean, first of all, one of the things that makes Texas so hard is that there isn't one answer. It depends considerably on where you live. So if there is no groundwater district, then you do own as much as you want, uh, basically. That's a little oversimplified, but not much. Um, <laughs> If you're within a groundwater district, then you need, you know, then I would say it's sort of like think about your house that you live in the city. Like, yes, you own it, but you're somewhat limited by zoning. So that's sort of how I, how I say, you know, it's not, it's still owned by you um, but we have a few more hoops that you have to jump through or considerations if you want to pump it and, and take it out. And that, I mean, there's a hundred different groundwater districts. So the variability in what that could mean for you specifically depending on where you live is highly highly variable um and so you know the high plains is the first groundwater district they're quite proud of that fact i mean they've been around a long time um they're pretty thoughtful about groundwater within a rural community they've actually you know in many ways early on were a little bit more um I don't want to use the word aggressive but thoughtful i guess on the different ways to to, to sort of think about this this issue uh, but yeah i mean the basic law in texas is that you you do own it it's just you were allowed to regulate it in the same way that the city can tell me that i can't necessarily build a third story on my house or something like that sure
0: yeah so and and to into that into um um, you know, sometimes when we're explaining it to clients, I like to give a visual representation and and, and the depletion of our water, and, and especially in West Texas, um, you know, where we're primarily groundwater and we don't have a lot of surface water type um, areas that we can treat and have <coughs> and so on. So I try to explain it like I think, you know, think you have a big, um, a big, you know, a big gulp and you've got you know, 40 straws in this one yeah. bowl, and they're all drinking at the same time. Well, that's going to go down a lot faster than, you know, one or two straws. So there has to be some type of, you know, some type of regulation on the amount that you're drawing out so that there's some for everyone. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is, do you think that, um, do you feel that we, I guess, do you feel that we would be, you um, The best practices for water conservation moving into the next uh, 10 years. What do you think would be the best types of um, You know, practices for those water conservation so that there aren't many straws in that drink drawing at one time. And do you foresee greater attention to the conservation of water. um, In that regard. So, I mean, so first of all, I mean, that the, we have to talk about groundwater and surface water a little
2: bit differently. I mean, I think we're mainly talking about groundwater because um, of that area, but um, just a note that surface water is kind of handled differently. And I mean, a lot of things, quite frankly, that I would want to do, we can't do because the law is pretty settled. Uh, there are opportunity, our opportunities to put some of different things into play got, Sort of taken away by the day case, which did say that you have it vested where you are. Um, you know, the one thing I would say that I do think that there's room if you're if you're talking about how to sort of Im- embed conservation more generally. Um, you know, we have a state water plan and the state water plan allows the different regions to talk about, you know, this is how much water we have, this is how much we think we're gonna need in the future with people coming, and then here's our delta, and here's how we propose we're gonna meet that delta. And, you know, not surprisingly, uh, region O, which is where Lubbock sits, has by far the biggest delta, but they also don't have nearly as aggressive of a concert, you know, when they're talking about where they're gonna get their future supply, I think there's an opportunity for conservation to be a much bigger piece of that. So what we have in Texas is this really unique and great structure for water planning. What we don't have built into that structure is a real review and an obligation to embed, to do everything you can with conservation first and then we'll talk about water supplies. So I think that there's a way to continue to empower the regions to make decisions for themselves because I do think that that bottom up makes a lot of sense while still putting some expected outcomes on top. So, you know, I teach, they tell me in the classroom, it's your classroom, you get to do whatever you want. Oh, but by the way, you know, you need to write what your outcomes are, you need to meet this many times, you need to give an assessment, you need to, and then, uh, so, you know, it's just putting a a little bit of a, I feel like a structure around it instead of it being quite so open-ended. If we want to talk about conservation that would be the way to at least really push that conversation and look conservation and ag isn't cheap and i recognize the individual farmers they may say all day like yeah i'd love to put in drip or whatever but i can't afford it but first i think to be able to understand the value of that we have to like say look well how much could we save and then maybe we figure out through some of these funds that we're willing to give cities hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to put in a brackish desal, maybe we give a bunch of it for individual farmers to to increase their conservation. I mean, it's the same, it's the same purpose. So, uh, you know, the hard, I think the harder part is that in an, it's disaggregated with farmers. So it's all these different people versus city of San Antonio or city of Lubbock asking texas water development board for two hundred thousand dollars in the rotating fund so i think we have to start really thinking about it as texas water even or or region a b and c however you want to talk about it Mm -hmm. and i think once we do that it gives us the opportunity to really use money and markets incentivization in a totally in a different way in a much more uh versatile way
0: yeah i find it interesting because traditionally you know we've um some of the stuff we've run into is, you know, some of the clients, and we work mainly for municipalities, so we have a lot of experience with municipality, um, but we find that they're going, you know, sometimes 10, sometimes 15 years uh, in between their own, you know, regional or local plan that falls in line with the, you know, Texas Water Development Board's uh, state plan, and and I just think that within 10 years so much changes
2: yeah in the population so there i mean there's another opportunity you know a Texas TCEQ requires these municipalities with a certain number of connections to do five year conservation plans but nobody really looks at them like yeah. they just you know so some of them when i was at EDF we did a we did a pretty deep dive into comparing a bunch of cities and some like san antonio's were amazing they had these amazing graphs they had all these numbers they had high goals and other ones were like, check. Basically, they filled out the form and then turned it in. So there's another opportunity to say, like, yeah, this isn't going to cut it. You know, like, no, you really do have to do this. Um, I mean, what is the point of having a system with nobody It'd be like me giving a final exam
0: and then not grading it? Like, what? Yeah, the they're just so, literally just checking off boxes. And, and yeah,
2: yeah, and so it basically gets like uh, reviewed for completion. Are all the boxes checked, A, B, or C, and then we're done. And so that's an opportunity to say, first of all, put your expectations out there. Here are the outcomes that you must meet. And yes, some people might still want to manipulate it or whatever, but it's still better than just, hey, tell us what you're going to do. Um, and then, you know, they ought to have professionals, experts that that partner and liaise with these cities to help them. Um, and yes. they ought to... I mean, our recommendations years ago, and this you know, I don't think ever happened, was that you basically have a best practices for a small, middle, and large city because obviously their resources are totally different. And so why aren't there water conservation experts at TCEQ partnering with these cities to help them? And they're not gonna have to spend their time on something like San Antonio, where they, we have an entire water conservation division, or Austin, but they can really help the middle-sized cities like Lubbock, um, do a lot of things that, frankly, Lubbock has been slow to, to do.
0: Yeah, we're, we're typically behind uh, usually about 7 to 10 years on any kind of technology. Right, so
1: that. I'm coming back in the nick of time. <laughs> yes, well, and I think it's crazy on that note that, I mean, technically, these entities can do their own drought contingency plan without a professional sealing it, stamping it, saying, okay, right. which that... Scientifically, like, shouldn't someone look over this and make sure that you can actually do this, that you're actually implementing it? Yeah, and I'm not, I mean, I'm I'm actually saying, look, this is, it's
2: a lot to take on. I mean, I look at, I work closely with, uh, you know, I've worked closely for years with the head conservation person at SAWS. She's amazing, right? Like she, this is her life. I wouldn't expect a Lubbock or a Brownsville or a Corpus to necessarily have somebody like that. Um, It's dumb to even try to prop up a, a whole department like that which is precisely why I feel like if, if, if Texas is willing to, to invest millions and tens of millions of dollars in these water supply things uh, or water conservation, you know, three people making 70 grand or five people making 70 grand is not much of an investment. And then all of a sudden we have this like potential for a huge cumulative impact. So I think again, we have a really unique structure it is not being utilized in the best way that it could be.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree completely on that. Um, um, do you think that there's there's you know major concerns uh, for the political nature of water allocations when you're when you're talking about these allocations for you know conservation districts or management districts or whatever? And how does that affect? How does that really trickle down and affect the everyday that your taxpayer? I mean, how, how did those Yeah, go- well, I mean, so if you're talking about ground, well, there's a lot of ways that politics plays. I mean, first of all, <laughs> the
2: legislature, right? So if, if, you know, there's, there's lobbyists, there's heavy lobbying that happens. Um, industry is going to have, you know, far more people than certainly the environmental community. The far, Texas Farm Bureau is very, very strong. Uh, cattle raisers. So, you know, how that all of course all of that has an effect. Now, sometimes those people are on the same side, everybody sometimes, I mean, it's all strange bedfellows. You never really know how things are gonna split. Um, But yeah, I mean, certainly because of Texas's culture and our land values and ownership, politics is, is gonna be very embedded in that. And I think what's unfortunate about that is there's a lot of assumptions built into that. I mean, we saw that with the right of capture where a lot of the agricultural groups were really advocating for ownership in place and because of property rights. But a lot of people hadn't really thought through what that means if the person next to you pumps you dry. And so suddenly I was getting calls of people saying, oh, you know, my neighbor pump me dry. What can I do? And I'm like, nothing. You can't do anything like that. Like, and by the way, your organization that you're a part of advocated for that. So you should, you know, and so one of the, the conversations we were having, for example, with the Farm Bureau when all that was going on was, well, hang on, like that's great for the person that wants to pump, but what about the other folks that I think have an equal right to their private property use? I mean, I'm not at all against private property use, but I think that we ought to think about, there may be neighbors that want different things. So. You know, you, and then on the groundwater districts, a lot of those are elected boards. So, of course, that has a political, so you can have two groundwater districts of the same aquifer where one of them is elected by a group of people that want them to be a bit more conservative and protective, and then the ones next door that don't. So, you know, yeah, there's we,
0: a political game. I mean, it's all
2: political.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. so. We've run into that. I mean, I think the, you know, for Region O, I want to say out here, I think, that what is it, like, Darby, I mean, if you correct me if I'm wrong, like, what is it, 30 or 50 feet off of the property line um, for a well or something like that? So, 50 that
1: feet off the property line. 50 feet off the
0: property mm-hmm. line. So you have 100 feet between two ag wells. And I mean, we're talking some of these ag wells that we're running into, 215, you know, 250 GPM. I mean, you know, yeah. big, 350 big producing ag wells in the Ogallala, which is pretty much depleting, you know, the further... South of, you know, towards Midland and all that anyway, but, um, um, you know, I, I I think it's weird because it's, it's, I think it's absolutely politically driven. I think you're right. Um, you know, with the lobbyist, it's just weird because you can find some of, you can find, you know, some ag, uh, wells that have never been documented anywhere that are producing wells and then you've got these other people that are having to fall in line with these oh you can only pump so much per you know per day per year or whatever that are that are trying to follow over the
2: same over the same aquifer i mean similarly you know city of lubbock is pulling a bunch of that water with basically you know very little regulations i mean my my friends still love and my former students will still send me pictures of like you know on a hot spring day with the wind blowing 40 miles an hour, you know, at 2 p.m. sprinklers on it. It's just not necessary, yeah. all over Tech Campus. It's just like, oh, you know, yeah. it's just not necessary. Um, and so it, it is a bit, hey, y'all, where, where do we want to end up? Um, so, I mean, your, your example of the big gulp, I mean, my example is, you know, if you want to retire, you go to a retirement planner and you say, hey, I want to retire at 65 or whatever, like how much money do I need to put away? And the first answer they're gonna say is like, well, how much do you wanna pay yourself? Like, what is your desired outcome? And then we will back up from there. And I, and I don't, I've never really understood what the desired outcome is. I mean, I know it's what the official desired of future condition is, but uh, I often wonder, I mean, I do feel like in Lubbock, there is among some of the community, the agricultural community, Look, this is going to get dewatered. Let's, let's make money off of it while we can, and then we're out of here. Um, and you're seeing a lot of sales of, of land that has water, uh, a lot. And so some people are sure coming in and buying that up, knowing that they may not be on it for a long time. But it's, it's really sad to see people liquidating their property now because they're, they're, they're assuming that the values are going to go down once the water quality really drops.
1: Do you right. think it's like an out of sight, out of mind thing, because we can't see the water, and so you're not, since you can't constantly see it, you're not constantly thinking about it, so it's kind of like a disassociation going on? I mean, I think it depends on who the community is. If you're talking
2: about city of Lubbock, I think I'm not really sure how much the, there's a connection. And so, you know, you look at some place like San Antonio, and now Austin is now on board.
0: Excuse
2: me, okay. she's got <laughs> kind of a bone and she's like, um, you know, where there is a real sort of connection between the water we use and where it comes from uh, because of our our history. Um, And I I don't see that in Lubbock. And by the way, that's not unusual. I would say most cities don't have that connection, but it's very unfortunate and it's really hard to move the needle. I mean, if San Antonio, if it comes out tomorrow that we have to go back to once a week, you know, watering, everybody just does it. Like we know that comes around. Um, And so part of it's that. I think farmers are far more not out of sight out of mind they're well aware and so some of them have really made a business decision to just farm now you know and and they know that it may not last a really long time i mean midland was a perfect example of you know that city almost ran completely out of water a few years ago and what they did at the last minute was double everybody's water rates and then but they didn't ever really put in different practices and then when the new water came online it was like okay we're back no problem it's like what are you doing and then you know a lot of people in town were just drilling their own wells and it was all for lawn watering so what what is like is what is the goal here and and if you're in a place like midland if you have a new water supply that comes online and you just go back to business as usual how long do you think that's really going to last
0: yeah
1: (laughs) well and i think it's interesting you spoke about how they they increase their rates as kind of like a okay so we'll increase rates so you won't use as much water as a practice i don't love that i don't think it works like you said because once the rates go back down everyone's like oh it's fine you know i can just keep watering per usual how would you kind of deter or i guess convince people otherwise of raising rates as like a conservation method or like what's your yeah. Opinion. so i
2: actually i do think that prices is, is a critical signal um what i don't think makes sense is that you do nothing until you're about to run out and then you make it so cost prohibitive that people who you know really might not be able to afford their water that's not the way that that should be done but um Price is a proven signal, right? We saw it when when gas prices were really high, all of a sudden SUV price, you know, basically sales went away. I mean, people do respond to price triggers and uh, these tiered, inverse tiered systems where we're, you're charging more for the more elastic water that is just, you know, because you want to that it, it really does send a good signal. And I will say that some, for something as valuable as water, I think one of the biggest historic problems we've had is that people take it for granted because it is cheap. Um, we've seen that in San Antonio uh, and we already are very conservation oriented in San Antonio, but the We brought on a new water supply and the bills have gone up and and the city is still sort of, I think, third or fourth in the lowest bills in the state of Texas. So they're not exorbitant and people are losing their minds. And because, you know, for a lot of people, especially low income people, that difference from $20 to $40 is a lot of money. um, And that's kind of what the base increase is. So, Pricing is can be extremely effective. And we don't and I think one of the problems to the groundwater issue is you may pay for a permit depending on where you live, you pay for a, a drill rig to come in. And then that's the last yeah. penny you pay. Um, and I think that in and of itself is, is problematic. Yeah, but I, you have to be careful with pricing. You don't want to I mean, water is something that we all need. And But most low-income people are not your big water users anyway.
0: No. Yeah, (laughs) no. When we see, you know, out in Central Texas in the Waco area, um, in the surrounding Waco area, you know, you've got these huge, huge homes that that has cattle on their land and they're, you know, buying an extra meter off of whatever water system or, you know, water supply corporation and sometimes in rural areas. And it's nothing. I mean, it's nothing to have a $3,000 water bill on that. I mean, it's, it, you know, sometimes they can go days with a with a broken water line and not even know it because the water's not coming up out of the ground to see it. They just realize, hey, um, you know, a month goes by and it's time for us to get our bill and all of a sudden it's $5,000. Well, that doesn't seem right. And and all the water's gone already. So Yeah.
2: So I think, you know, smart meters are becoming more common for that reason. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, in addition to the fact that i don't want somebody not knowing that they have you know and having to pay these prices it's also just a very poor use of water right like you know unaccounted for unmetered water whatever you want to call it like that that's that's not good on many levels and I, and i think too to the former to the previous conversation about people behave better when they're connected to something i mean you know if you if if i realize you know if i'm if i am got it on an app on my phone not everybody but I think a lot of people you know they get a chime like hey your bill just hit you're now in the second tier you're now in the third tier uh, and it's happening quickly or hey we just noticed that your uh, your use just popped way up compared to what it's been historically are you doing something different or maybe you have a leak I mean All of that is is very important and the larger cities are all putting in, you know, starting to do the smart meter system. San Antonio Water Systems just approved a pilot. I think Houston and Austin are already on the way. So, you know, again, these these little devices that are really not good for our brains, all the studies show, um, can have a lot of value. If we're gonna have them in their hand all the time. I mean, it's crazy to me that there are more people that want a camera on their doorbell so they can, you know, see when a package gets delivered, then they want to know how much power or water they're using. I mean, we, and it's, I think it's through some false senses, right? And so,
0: yeah,
2: the social security and danger and all this, and, you know, and it's like, to me, let's use it for something that's, far more beneficial uh let's, and so yeah so i think we do want to make sure when we're pricing things and, and i do water utilities have i think a responsibility when they're you know charging these now not nominal amounts that we are communicating effectively with the customer
0: oh absolutely it comes down to the operations and stuff too and so and, and to speak on that a little bit more you know municipalities in order to put some of these infrastructures in order to get some of this, uh, you know, newer technology and things like that. Um, they're required to put in, you know, uh, water lines in certain areas that might mm. be you know, heavily, heavily residential or, or something like that. And there's lots of um, you know, in Texas, especially um, landowners are very, you know, they're very, this is my land and, and, you know, I don't want you kind of coming in on this land and, and municipalities are having to impose the eminent domain in, in several um, in several cases just to put some of these infrastructures in that yeah. are actually, you know, the bigger picture are supposed to be helping. And so, um, you know, what are your thoughts on on municipalities having to do those, um, you know, imposing eminent domain in in, uh, for some of this infrastructure that's needed.
2: So I think we're at an imminent domain like saturation point and people are over it I mean when you look at the history and it's you know I would say the water is sort of the least of it the pipelines are really really starting I mean and if you look at it cumulatively where you have you know electric transmission lines from the either from the West Texas solar arrays or from the wind turbines and then you have you know, this now just huge crisscross, I mean, I drive back and forth from Central Texas to West Texas at least once a month. And the the sort of scars on the landscape for some of these pipelines has increased. Every time I drive, I see a new one. And the width of them, I mean, these are not small, they're just gashes. And then on top of that, you have, you know, the water situation and even some of the build out of road infrastructure. I mean, I know the Trans-Texas corridor kind of died, but Um, you know, I've talked to landowners that were buying their sort of retirement parcel and they've ended up with five or six things crisscrossing their land. And I think at some point that, and there's been eminent domain reform in front of the legislature the last at least two sessions, and it hasn't gone through maybe this one, I don't know, this one's probably going to get hijacked by COVID, but, um, we need to have a conversation about this. And so when we think about the history of eminent domain and the utility exception, I really don't think that this is what it was anticipating. It wasn't anticipating this level of development. And so um, the water stuff that's fascinating to me where we're really seeing water in eminent domain are these long-haul pipelines, like the one that goes from the hill country down into San Antonio. Well, it's not really yeah. hill country, east of Austin. Um, and that one, I mean, you know, sometimes you can follow things like an I-35 corridor, but you know, when places like Lubbock talk about, you know, well, we'll just buy water from here, or Dallas says, we'll just buy it from Oklahoma. Well, like, how are you going to get it from point A to point B? Like you're gonna, there's a lot of people that are going to get impacted by that. So in addition to the fact that people don't like their water being exported, they really don't appreciate you cutting across their land to do it. So, yeah. um, you know, how how we're doing it, you know, this, this sort of it's been a rubber stamp because for years it was like rail lines and electric lines and that was it. And then it just kind of exploded. So, and, and the valuation piece and, and frankly, people are getting bullied. You know, if you don't know your rights and you can't afford a lawyer, it's scary to get these letters and they're, they lowball them when they come in and then they see if you're smart enough or savvy enough to, to make a deal. Um, And that, that's wrong, right? Like, cause that's, Gross to me. So we definitely have a lot. I think that the eminent domain thing is broader than what you're talking about, and it, but it is time for us to kind of talk about it because I think
0: yeah, time to bring that to the forefront. I know. I mean, even in the short term, yeah. you know, especially around the Houston area, that's it's something yes. that that's happening. It's that's happening on the wastewater side of things. Um, um, you know,
2: well, and imagine but- a desal plant at the coast. You know, people are like, oh, yeah. we'll just get desal water. It's like. How do you think you're gonna you yeah. know even if you have the energy and you can pay for it at the end user stage, you have to get it there and that's cutting across a lot of people's land you
0: yeah, know? It's, and it's not a four inch it's not a four inch water no. line I mean, we're about just, yeah,
2: big <laughs> enough to drive a car through
1: yeah
0: huge yeah.
1: well, it's it's not just the line too. I mean, it's the construction easement to build oh, yeah. along, oh, all yeah. the people on. It, after the maintenance work on it repair right and those lines
2: will break too over time
0: you
1: know exactly about
2: water water loss oh my god can you imagine
0: yeah yeah and so i i wanted to speak kind of on that as well darby i know we i know you've got some uh questions as well but um so darby is a um is a you know an environmental engineer so she has some of the environmental concerns definitely dear to her heart and um and in speaking about some of the things that we can do for conservation, not that this is, you know, this is kind of leaning towards more of a conservation type discussion, but, um, you know, what are, what are some of your thoughts on um, how we can kind of better educate um, You know, the general pot uh, general population on the positive aspects of water reuse for things like common area, you know, lawn lawn care or common area spaces for commercial, you know, large areas um what do you what do you think that they're you know what do you think we can do to better educate general population
2: yeah so i think that's one place that pricing can actually be a real driver um that's a perfect example of where you can you know especially i mean one of the things that i've been asked before which is one of my favorite questions is like i can't remember exactly how it was but it was like what do you think 50 years from now we'll look back and be like you did what you know and my answer is we treated water to drinking water quality standards, and then we dumped it on a lawn or a golf course or whatever. Um, like how ridiculous is that? First of all, I just the, a lot it, of- the cost, the energy, all of it. Like it's, it's just, you know, when, and that's before you even get to like how the rest of the world does, can't even get access to it at all for their own home. So you know thinking about you have to build it into your financial model so if you're a municipality you have to build it in so like in san antonio we just had this conversation because they're doing we're doing a rate well we were doing a rate advisory review before COVID hit now it's paused but uh, we have a totally different rate structure for our for the purple pipe water for the you know the gray water and there was a question about uh, and it's less, significantly less. And so, somebody, the rate advisory structure was was advocating that it should be based on cost of service. And I was just listening because I'm a board member, so I get to vote on it later. So I was just kind of following it, and I, and I just was like, "There's no way in hell, as a board member, I would ever vote for that to be cost of service like that. Why? Why would you put the exact price tag on that when there's all kinds of co-benefits?" So this internalization of externalities and making sure that we're sending price signals that aren't just based on cost, but also the, the, the actual price. So not just the cost, but the price, the other prices, I think is, is a huge, is a huge piece. And I will say that, you know, the whole necessity is the mother of all invention. I mean, that also might be the driver here. Some of these cities are not going to be you reusing wastewater and and pulling off the fresh water off of lawns may be their cheapest water supply option. And you're already seeing cities that um, are not wanting to sell their treated wastewater to oil and gas companies and things like that because they're like, they wanna keep it for themselves. Um, So I think you saw Lubbock recently sold a bunch of of treated wastewater. I was actually surprised to see that because I thought they might wanna reserve some but some, I haven't looked into the numbers, but somebody said that it's only a small portion of their total wastewater. But I know Sweetwater has turned companies down in the past and said they've turned down a power provider about 10 years ago and said, nope, we're not, we're not selling you our wastewater because we may want it. Right. So it's probably a combination of those things.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, some of the stuff we're seeing on our end is, you know, you've got You've got, I, you know, I hate to make generalities here, but you've got the soccer mom who's worried about little Timmy falling on the ground and there being, you know, some types of medications that have been flushed down the toilet and that thought process of this has been in my toilet or this is, you know, right. and how can you possibly clean all these things out that could be in it um, to a standard that would be considered safe? And so I think the education of that, of how, yeah. you know, how that water gets clean And showing the difference in the water that you're drinking now, um, and and you know the water quality from from being cleaned up and and yeah, I mean the
2: irony is a lot of the I mean this is terrible, but a lot of those medications is coming in our drinking water. I mean the the already yeah, I don't want to freak people out more by trying to educate them on this other (laughs) stuff, but the reality (laughs) is like none of us are really. I mean you know. Unless it comes straight out of an aquifer, which even like cities like San Antonio that have that, it's now starting to get diluted with other water sources. But everybody else, that water's you know been you're you're on like your user number eight or something or more. Yeah. I don't know. So yeah. yeah, and I think I mean yeah. I, at first, I think gray water. and We're not talking about putting it in homes, although you know that may be coming. There's certainly a lot of places in the world that do that, but when you talk about it's perfectly safe for 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 watering you know um i wouldn't put it in a pool and throw my kid in
0: it yeah i mean you know you you can you can come from this background in geology on what happens once that water hits the ground and goes you know hits a fissure or something like that and goes and before by the time it gets down to the aquifer if it even does right um you know yeah
2: i mean it varies based on the community but i will say that i mean water treatment now is you know, what they can do is, is kind of incredible. And the there are cities that have been using gray water systems for decades with no issues. So, um, and actually some small cities like Wichita Falls are some of the cities that are the most yeah. cutting edge on some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, they've got a big, a really nice plan out there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I
1: actually worked on a reuse project in Harris County and that was the biggest part for us was convincing the mud board members and you know the users like hey no this is actually treated so you can comfortably use it for irrigation without concern. There's
0: no
2: smell there's no yes
1: yeah so I think I mean the nice thing is that
2: that there are a lot of examples in Texas that are only a road trip away and going to those has can have a really big impact
1: so visual
2: besides just yes. here hear the
1: facts yeah. we i mean i've been to the, the one in el paso the Kate
2: bailey hutchinson one that it starts off as black water so it's like raw sewage and at the end it's drinking water um it, it's incredible it's an incredible system that they have and yeah. very few places need that or want that because it's outrageously expensive but yeah it's possible it works you know
0: yeah yeah and we've got some pictures of some um Treated uh, stormwater from a from a wastewater plant that's fallen on you know it's mostly an impervious area on this wastewater plant, but we've got some pictures showing it going back out into you know waters of the state where the water that's going into this creek is literally cleaner. crystal clear and it's so much cleaner.
2: Right, and and I mean you know any almost downstream from almost any city in in uh, Texas, that water is critical for that the downstream users to get clean water for irrigation and other purposes, not to mention the environment. So um, it's already happening. So a lot of it is just telling people, actually, you've already been doing this. You just didn't know. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. What is it Darby? We say there, I guess everybody says the solution to pollution, pollution is, is pollution. is solution.
2: Yeah. yeah. I just said um, that in the class the other day. <laughs>
1: We say that all the time. All the that time, and yeah. you're always downstream from someone else's toilet. No, it's true. It's true.
2: I will say, I feel like San Antonio and a couple of other places are the rare exception to that. Because we're pulling out, you know, thousand-year-old aquifer crystal water that requires no treatment. But for the most part, you know, there's... Rub it you know, in a
1: little bit. There's yeah. critters
2: in there pooping. So, so you know,
1: it's still... Yeah.
0: It's mm-hmm. old you know, old water. We have all kinds of fun stuff like uh, yeah. arsenic and... and uh, Lead, lead,
1: copper. Yeah, (laughs) well,
0: naturally occurring
1: arsenic
2: is pretty common in Texas. Yeah, and
1: Um, um, I do want to get back to your geology background because Wendy kind of touched on that again, and I want to circle back to that. So I know you said that financial reasons were why you went to law school, but why did you? Yeah, it
2: wasn't. I mean, the financial reasons why I went to tech. I went to law school because um i really wanted to feel like i had a job that made a difference and you know i just i was i'm not saying there's not geology jobs that are well, there's two reasons i would say one is you could be a pure scientist and and you know collect data and do things that is in, are incredibly incredibly useful in understanding the natural system so that you can make a difference I was not a great scientist. I'm not that good at the details. I didn't want to look at soil samples. Uh, I did want to be outside. (laughs) But the reality of what my life would be, and I will say that the economy was such when I got out that there wasn't a lot of of those jobs and so it just didn't really work out. And the realization that that would not be really the best use of my skill set. And so, and then I was doing environmental consulting as a geologist for a while. And, you know, you just, it was a lot of spreadsheets and and it it didn't really feel very deeply connected. Um, And so, yeah, it was sort of like, okay, well, how am I going to make this, you know, how do I get to where I want to go? So I had the choice of sort of a public policy master's or a law degree and the law, my dog is now spinning. I'm I'm just going to turn, I'm listening, I'm going to turn my camera off and occupy her real quick. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so, um, yes, I know Leah, you've met your, peak maximum point. Um, So yeah, just the notion that I wanted to be more, I guess, feel like I was making a change uh, and being more involved. And I think I'm a big picture thinker. That's, you know, where my brain works and I love strategy and strategizing. And so it's just a much better
1: fit, I think. Well, that was going to be my next question. Why? But I mean, you seem like a very structured person and, So law actually seems. I am very linear.
2: I went from science (laughs) to law. I'm extremely logical and linear. It's kind of boring, actually. No,
1: no, those are the like. One of my former bosses is like, "You're a
2: line. I'm a squiggly." I'm like, "I am definitely not a squiggly. Uh, I am very, very linear." Yeah.
0: um, Well, I think I have. I'm going to wrap it up. uh, Up. I know you've got a lot going on. um, Sorry.
2: I'm, so now I've moved what... I moved outside. Now I look kind of like
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you're good um, in the dark. Uh, I just wanted to touch on one last thing too yeah, before, sure. um, before before we let you go. And again, thank you so much for your time. It's really yes, thank you. No, it's been fun. Um, um, so what is what are your thoughts on on this huge change in population to Texas from you know? this, this California kind of rush back over to Texas. Well, this
2: keeps me up at night. Like, I don't, I mean, I just, there's, there's, I really, I don't see how we have enough to, to go around. I mean, there is a lot of room to reduce our usage. There's a lot of room to, to, you know, but honestly, the biggest fear that I have is the land impacts from all the spread. I think that it can fundamentally change and limit the water resources in ways that I don't know how we get it back. I mean, the sprawl, you know, when I went back to tech to teach, I was asked to teach this land use class, as I mentioned. And it's funny how in life the right thing finds you. And so I didn't want to teach that class. I'd taken that class. I didn't even know what the class covered. Let's be honest. (laughs) Um, And it turned out to fundamentally change my and inform my work. Um, Because what I've come to realize is if we really want to change the water sort of future, we have to think about it as we use land. I mean, we, you guys are engineers. We have a history of sort of taking pride in engineering over nature, right? Dams, cementing, culverts, all this stuff, Uh, look at New Orleans. And yeah. at the end of the day, nature wins. And so when we can design around the natural system, it works so much better. And so I love seeing low impact developments, You know, this sort of more high density use. Uh, we are shooting ourselves in the foot, right, left, and center by the way that we're expanding. And so when you think about the rate of expansion that some cities in Texas have seen, particularly on the I-35 corridor, with almost no supervision and in texas our counties don't have zoning authority that that is the problem if you want to fix water fix how we manage land development
0: yeah yeah we couldn't agree more i think yeah. we we're kind of we were, we're kind of in that same boat on on feeling of of um you know thinking kind of thinking ahead in that in that aspect and um for us it's definitely that connection to um nature and being able to use what we know to um help for the future um and i think there yeah was- and
2: it doesn't it doesn't mean that we don't have to be comfortable right like there's no you're not living in a yurt or a you know a bale house or you know whatever a straw bale house although those are super cool by the way but- yeah like
0: darby darby might <laughs> pretty soon i would
2: actually probably i would no, i would do it but i'm saying that like you know the to, to the point to, the communication piece is not you know it's like water conservation means you can't shower daily well, no it doesn't that's ridiculous um and it, it is about there is a there is a transition there's a transition on the visual that your these new neighborhoods don't look like kind of what you see out 98 then 112 or whatever where it's like every house every house every house lawn 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 but um you know the areas where these shared open space communities have been built people love them love yeah. them and they end up being people meet each other more, it's a better community, people actually use the open space more, then you can build in drainage and so drainage ends up looking like a water feature. I
1: mean there's all kinds of things you can do. It's yeah. in- innovative and, and kind of big picture. Yeah, and they're still
2: beautiful and they still these houses, some of them are extremely high value homes.
0: Yeah, yeah, we've run into that a lot. I, I do I do recognize that there are some, especially in West Texas, some efforts Uh, In that capacity to kind of uh, at least some thought there um, to do these common areas, these common spaces and and kind of have the shared the shared vision. So, um, but i you know i i really do want to thank you again I, uh sure. it's been such a pleasure talking to you and we don't want to you know take too much of your time no, that, yeah. but, um we would love to come back and revisit this um uh, maybe yeah, well, i'll
2: be there i'll see you in the you know just come buzz me in the spring we can revisit yeah it.
0: yeah that'd be there's
2: great there's always a lot to talk about yeah, yeah I-
1: well i mean with water, it's endless, and we could talk, I mean, we were talking once, the first time you called in, we kept talking about everything, and we could keep talking all night about it, too.
2: (laughs) I did, uh, for one of my classes, I had two really preeminent water lawyer friends of mine, and we recorded a Zoom call. I had to, like, cut it off after (laughs) over an hour and 15 minutes, because that's the length of the class, and uh, and I was like, guys, I gotta, you know, upload this thing or whatever, and it's like, you, you know, and I said in the recording, like, you can see, like, we're just getting started. Like, you know, I'd written down a bunch of questions. I think we got to number three. It was like, oh, forget it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, that's, how
2: it. <laughs> that's how we
0: are. We're, we're like, okay, we're going to have to cut this off or it's going to go all night.
2: We'll and do, then we'll we- do version one and version two and version, I mean, yeah. we'll do, you know, round just two. Yeah. We'll be continued. And next time I'll exercise my dog beforehand.
0: So be <laughs> no, we'll bring all the time. dogs. They can meet virtually. Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: you, your experience and, and what you do and what you advocate for it it's so important and the work you do is so important. And I'm so glad that we got to talk about water conservation because it's such a big topic, not just for Texas, but for the entire country and the world. For sure. And that's I, where think we're that going. They, I think
2: engineers are going to, and I, you know, I think that the world is moving in that direction, but like engineers, architects they're, you know, I think historically it was thought of as, um, Oh, that's a very chirpy bird. Yeah. <laughs> Never heard that before. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> uh, You know, it was always like a law and policy thing and I actually think, you know, it's the people who build it that have all the power Um, and to to put a design on it where people, you know, why do people even have to know, you know, what you're doing like that. They don't have to be, you know, it used to be, well, I want a lead building and I want it to look like lead. And now I think we're, you know, that's great. I love those too, but let's move into things that are just better, smarter buildings and you can pitch it based on lower bills and that's that's good enough you know yeah.
0: when you talk pocketbook and money uh for the Yeah, users, i don't
2: need you to love it the way I, for the reasons i love it right yeah we just yeah. want it to get done yeah. i'm not asking you to come over to my way of my religion yeah
0: <laughs> sure yeah no we I just want that, you, um, to I we're you to pray, pray so. i don't care how you get to that point Just, just figure exactly. It out. exactly um well thank you again darby if you don't mind yes sure our information and we would love to um, you know when the um, when the the end of the world ends um, hopefully (laughs) um,
2: looking closer and closer let me tell you i'm not i have i'm not optimistic
0: (laughs) when uh when we can possibly share a a lunch or a meal or something when you're in town please let us know we'll uh we'll pick a cool place to take you and um and talk a little bit more yeah that'd
2: be great we can even just you know pick I don't think spring will be any better than now from a COVID standpoint so we can always just picnic outside and yell yeah. at each other from far away I'm yeah that. six feet apart yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah okay well thank you again so much sure, have thank a good evening and, thanks for your uh, patience we thank you <laughs> and we'll be in touch thank you again during this series we hope you've enjoyed today's episode um as always uh you can reach us in several different ways darbs will hit them with social
1: Yes, you can follow us on Instagram at H2HourPodcast, on Twitter at H2HourPodcast, and follow our Facebook by going to Facebook.com slash H2HourPodcast, and we'll be back next week. H2Hour is both produced and hosted by Wendy Reese and Darby Adams.